Sam Peters, it's very good to see you and really good to have you on the 20 Questions with podcast. Thanks, Matt. It's great to be here. Thanks for inviting me on. Your book, Concussed, is out and I think it's a really important book and I've only just been able to have a look at it today and so I haven't read it cover to cover but I've got a sense of it and this is such an important story that you're telling and it's really fascinating to me because you were a sports journalist you were a successful sports writer focusing on rugby Mm. and yet there you were lifting the lid on a major problem within a sport that you loved and had played as a boy Mm -hmm. and that clearly made your job as a rugby loving rugby reporter very difficult so that's part of what I want to tease out in Mm. In the, in the 20 questions that we have and also just to get a sense of how big an issue this is for rugby and also for other sports as well so mm-hmm. great, great to see you and and before I start asking you my first question I should say that we were at school together and that you're a couple of years above me and that I just remember you being a brilliant cricketer I think your older brother Tom was also a very good cricketer he was a left armer wasn't he yeah, he's a good player. I, I don't know if I was brilliant, but I was, I was all right. Thank you. That's very flattering. <laughs> well, you, you did outline in the book your averages as a player <laughs> at school as a batsman, and they were prodigious. And of course, you were you were number ten in rugby and played for your university, Edinburgh, as well. Mm-hmm. My first question is this: How soon after starting as a sports reporter did you realise that there was a problem? Uh, really soon, actually. Uh, I had obviously played uh, rugby growing up, as you've just said, Matt, and uh, loved it. Absolutely loved playing. I did everything I possibly could to to keep playing. I had to stop playing when I was 22 because I had three reconstructions of my shoulder, all of those operations with the intention of carrying on playing. So I understood that there was significant risk associated with playing rugby. Um, I totally got that. That was a big part of the attraction for me, but I didn't realise the scale of the injuries that were being experienced by professional players um, and the, yeah, just the the sheer scale and the, the, the the willingness to tolerate injuries was extraordinary for me. And and I, the number of injured players, every single game, there were injured players, um, big numbers being out from, from the teams and, it was really soon how how the penny dropped on me that this is an unreported story. This is not being articulated as clearly as I felt it should have been in the media and it wasn't being given the prominence it should have been um, for all manner of reasons. That must have been quite a scary realisation for you that you were making your livelihood out of a sport that you could see was very dangerous to human beings. Yeah, I mean... I didn't go into becoming a, a sports reporter and specifically a kind of rugby focused sports reporter believing there was no risk. Like, of course, there's risk to playing sport. That is part of its attraction. Uh, anybody who says they've taken a rugby field and hasn't considered the fact that they could finish it being quite seriously hurt um, shouldn't be on a rugby field, if you ask me, because they're not thinking clearly or rationally. Like That is part of its appeal. Um, but as I said, the, the scale of the problem was something I didn't realise. The game had changed so radically um, when it went professional in 1995. Everyone knew that. There were quite a lot of suggestions that this could come with consequences. But I don't think people, when I really started reporting around 2004, um, really had even begun to consider the scale of the problem and the kind of, yeah, the unintended consequences of changing the game so radically, um, enabling 
and paying guys to play and train, crucially train five to six days a week, as well as then play at least once a week. And the way that the kind of numbers of the matches, even though the games were getting more physical, the players were getting more committed, they were getting much bigger, much faster, the contacts on the pitch were much bigger. Um, but there were more games than ever before, more tr- more intensive training than ever before. And really quickly, I started kind of obsessing about the injury data. I'd always had a sort of weird obsession with statistics. Maybe that was combined with with my ego as to why I put in those 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 averages in the in the in the book. Um, that was partly to illustrate how much I loved sport growing up, but also my interest in data and 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 there were all these figures coming up and it was just so clear once you started to marry up what I was seeing with my own eyes with the actual data and looking at the data in a different way perhaps to how it was being presented and then once you started to fit those two side by side I started to realize there was a really serious problem. But for you as I'm suggesting you know, it's a very difficult position or a challenging position to find mm. yourself in because mm. your job as a rugby reporter is partly to, I guess, sell rugby, isn't it? I mean, people who read the newspapers want to read about people who read the sports pages want to read about great rugby games. They want to they want to be thrilled by it. You know, yeah. maybe they want to be inspired to take up the sport. Maybe they want to to go to the games themselves watch it on telly and so forth. So, of course, you're reporting what you see, but part of being in sport is to kind of, you're, you're part of the celebration of sport, I guess. And yet here you were having to sound the klaxon, sound the alarm, mm. that there was something very dangerous going on, as I say. So I wonder whether you felt, in a sense, a conflict of interest that you struggled with. Unquestionably, Matt. I mean, that was something that I fought internally, like constantly. In some ways, I still do, some a little bit, but much less now than I did 20 years ago. Um, partly because I've learned so much more, I've understood so much more. I think um, I've been consistent in my approach. Uh, early on, it was very, very hard to get these stories published because the vast majority of people didn't believe it was a story, even the injury piece, general injuries, um, which again were being sort of compared to those more normally witnessed uh, in car crashes, um, horrendous, uh, horrendous injuries being suffered by some of these guys. Um, And then the concussion piece was like an extra level because it was sort of talking about brain injury, dementia in sports pages. This was not something that had been covered before or that there was any belief really that there was any appetite for. And um, But my, I always came back to the fact that I was trained as a journalist. I went to City University, did a postgraduate diploma in journalism. I had never signed up to be a PR guy. I'd signed up to be a journalist and I felt there was an obligation for me to follow the story. And that unquestionably made me unpopular for a long time. It probably still, still does in a lot of circles, but you know, I saw a story, I I believed there was value in reporting it, um, and I I stuck by my guns, I suppose. But yeah, it definitely caused me problems. Um, I People would, uh, would briefing behind my back a lot. I, press conference, press rooms would sometimes go quiet um, when I come in because people would have been talking about the stuff I've been writing. And I know lots of people thought I was, you know, pardon the phrase, but um let's just say pooing on my own doorstep because um it was it i was essentially challenging the narrative of the sport i was 
putting commercial interests um, at risk. Uh, I was challenging commercial interests and but I felt my duty as a journalist was to report the story um, regardless of the consequences commercially and also I felt I had a duty to report it on behalf of the players who because of the way that the game had been structured and the unions was their, their play the players unions were so toothless um, that no one else was was calling this out um, so yeah it was a big challenge it remains a challenge although I'm less conflicted now because I'm not working in newspapers so I'm not part of that kind of PR machine as such we're speaking in the week that Owen Farrell's red card against Wales has been downgraded to a yellow. That decision by an independent disciplinary panel has been appealed, is being appealed by World Rugby. How concerned are you, and I'm not pointing the, the finger at any individuals, how concerned are you that the game as a whole, the professional game, if we can put it like that, just still hasn't got it when it comes to head injuries? Yeah, I'm, I'm really concerned. I mean, I'm I'm absolutely staggered that that wasn't just a straight red card. I mean, okay, there's this new bunker system, which I think is sensible. That gives an opportunity to assess decisions and uh, potentially change them. But that was a red card every single day of the week. And that was a red card 25 years ago. It was a red card five years ago. It's a red card today. How on earth that has been downgraded to a yellow I just don't know and well I've, I've read the the, the reports and, and and the how it was concluded it's complete nonsense you know the example that sets to younger players and also the message it sends to parents of children who may want to play rugby of which I would by the way still support um, rugby I think it's a fantastic game but that is a terrible message to be sending and it's really really concerning that a, players are still hitting like that. They're still tackling. That's part of Farrell's technique. That's no commentary on his personality. That's purely a comment on his technique is completely unfit for purpose. And he's a, he's a liability as a defender in the England backline, frankly. Um, and the fact they're still being coached to hit that way and the fact that when these tackles are made, which are completely illegal, they're an assault on the head, on the brain, that it's not just being dealt with much more swiftly and I think we could have moved this conversation a lot further forward and rugby would be in a much healthier position if people at the top of the game had really seriously invested in this idea of zero tolerance on head contact um, because people don't want to see it people do not want to see it and, and anyone who does want to see someone being assaulted in the head on a rugby field shouldn't be anywhere near a rugby ground anyway. I should say that Owen Farrell and his coaches would would argue that he is trying to tackle in a legal way and that mm -hmm. mistakes can happen mm -hmm. and that his coaches would say he's being coached to tackle in a legal way. How, how safe can rugby ever be, essentially, when we're considering the fact that, as you point out in the book, you've got giants of men and, and large women in the women's game, and you, you do touch on female concussion, but only briefly and you kind of apologize for that don't you yeah but you've got yeah. hu you've got huge units smashing into each other you know tackles are becoming have become collisions and so forth the, the language around rugby might have might have even changed to reflect this as you as mm -hmm. again you point out can rugby ever be sufficiently safe i mean you say you still support the game mm. i'm now as a father seriously questioning whether i would want my son 
to play a game, but I enjoyed playing it as a boy. And I played at you know at university. I think I even turned out for Chiswick Rugby Club. Definitely not. Who are in the book, by the way? <laughs> they are in the book, and that's why I mentioned it. But that, you know, yeah. it wasn't in the first fifteen. But how safe is it possible for a, a, a full contact sport like rugby ever to be, mm. Sam? Well, rug- rugby will always be dangerous. It always has been dangerous. It always will be dangerous. I've, I, you know, and it shouldn't have to apologise for that. I, that is part of its beauty it's part of its attraction my position has always been it's about informed choice it should always be about informed choice and i think the risk profile of professional rugby has radically changed and my my battle if that's the right word that i was fighting with rugby's authorities in the kind of early 2010s to around that time uh, once i really started to understand the data in the the audits that were being done around injuries was that they were misrepresenting the reality. And it was so clear to me and to many, many other people, by the way, I was not alone in believing this and that the game had gone, had outgrown itself in a sense. The players were too big. The the collisions were too big. The intensity of the game had got to a point no one had ever considered possible um, or reasonable. And it, and it had become unreasonably dangerous um it become reckless uh and and there was a always going to be a consequence to that so clive woodward who kindly wrote a forward for this book said it was this lingering doubt that there was a going to be a price to pay essentially for this change the changing of the shape of the game um and the shape of the players and I've got no doubt whatsoever that because lots of people have told me this and I've asked them, you know, if you knew all this stuff about long term risks associated with repetitive head injuries uh, and you had the chance to play again, most people would because the return is so great. You know, the, the opportunity is so great, but they must be given the choice based on truth and based on so they can make an informed decision. And whilst rugby has so many qualities that I have championed and believe in, there's so many good things that go with rugby, but there is also risk. And pretend to pretend there isn't is completely disingenuous and potentially very dangerous. But so we're getting close to the nub of, I suppose, one of the issues here. And that is that if everything that you would like to be seen to be done is done to make rugby as safe as it can be, even in those circumstances, if in reality we know that anyway, I don't know, 10 people will get serious con- concussions every every season mm. within one country, let's see, in the, in the top tier of one country. And the two of those people, I don't know, I'm not, I'm not speaking statistically here from any knowledge, mm. but two of those people will go on later in life to develop early onset dementia. So in other mm. words, if, if, we're, if we're able to understand that, if that turns out to be the case... Mm-hmm. Does rugby still survive? I mean, how, in other words, how much damage to human beings further down the line in their lives and indeed uh, as they're playing is tolerable? I mean, that's for society to decide, really, Matt. I mean, that's that's not really for me. I mean, I think in many ways I've got a kind of I'm more tolerant of risk than probably most people. You know, the 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 fact that I've played the game for so long and was prepared to take those risks with my own body and I you can probably see that my shoulder's quite wonky here you know I've got a permanently disfigured AC joint because that popped out when I smashed up my shoulder and dislocated it and did all sorts of damage to it but you know so 
but I, I'm, I'm, we're a society that that now uh, accepts UFC cage fighting. I, I find it appalling. Um, you know, I watched some a documentary of Mary Beer the other day, Mary Beard, um about the gladiators and the uh, the amphitheater. You know. Human beings have always had a bloodlust. They've always wanted to see this. They've always wanted to see people getting hurt, you know, and people getting beaten up for their own entertainment. That's, you know, we used to, people used to crowd around the gallows and watch people hanging. But, you know, have we, we, I would like to think we've moved on from that. I think if we don't constantly check ourselves, um, you know, that is always there lingering in human nature. And I, I personally, never watched rugby and never got enjoyment from rugby because of when I saw people getting hurt I saw I enjoyed rugby because of the beauty of someone throwing a 25 yard miss pass and a Jeremy Guska outside break and a you know even you know a number eight pick up from the scrum and drive over from five meters you know Aladdin Richards or you know whatever it was it was it wasn't the the brutality that you see now. And I think, you know, I read something and I think I've quoted Willie John McBride, the great Lions captain, you know, in the book saying he played for however many years his career was, let's call it a decade at least. And he never left the pitch injured. He never left the pitch injured. You know, that's one of the greatest Lions captains of all time through the 1970s, unbelievably physical player, but weighing in at, you know, less than 16 stone, six foot, Five around just under I think you know he never left the field injured and you literally cannot play a career of professional rugby now and not leave the field injured I mean you're going to be very very lucky to not leave the field injured every 10 games let alone 10 years. I mean there are a couple of things to say about that one is that of course we want players to leave the field if they have a head injury that's extremely important. Yes. And, and in, back in the day people were getting concussions and not leaving the field. Yeah. And, 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 and sometimes we've seen in recent years, as, as you document in the book, players who have seemed to the viewer on television to be concussed, actually either not leaving the field or, or, or coming back on, onto the field, whatever it is. So mm-hmm. I think that's one thing to emphasise, that the game is at least trying to get a grip on this. Mm-hmm. Whether it's trying hard enough is is, is central to what you're talking about, I think. Yeah, and I should just say, just to, for clarity, when I'm talking about injuries, I'm talking about non-head injury, related head injuries. So torn hamstrings, ruptured knees, dislocated shoulders, those kind of injuries that they weren't leaving the field. Clearly, I'm a very strong proponent of clear hit players leaving the, leaving the field when they've got a concussion. And leaving the field if they're injured, right? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. The other thing to say about that is that rugby was actually when you know when I was growing up watching it, when you were growing up watching it, it was a much dirtier game than it is today. It's actually yeah. quite a clean game, bizarrely. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's so scrutinised, and livelihoods mm-hmm. are at stake, careers are at stake that you don't see the sort of punch ups that you might have seen when we were watching in the eighties or nineties. Mm-hmm. And that is something that is a clearly a plus for the game. But yeah, as the scrutinies come those sort of horrific kind of 1974-type brawl, 99 brawls, you know, which were part of rugby folklore and kind of always will be. Um, but we don't see that as much, um, for sure. But the the degree of physical risk that the players take now, I would argue, is considerably higher than back in those days. It's interesting that you say you've watched rugby or you, you 
you know, you, you grew into rugby or loved rugby because of the arcing runs of Jeremy Guscott, say, rather than rather than the brutality. And I, I'll be candid and say that one of the things that I've enjoyed about rugby is the idea of, you know, yeah, I watch club rugby, but mostly England. And it's been, mm-hmm. watching England has been one of the great joys and passions of my life. Mm-hmm. Well, of course, I love the running rugby, and when when rugby is played at its most free flowing, it is re- it's it's a thing of beauty in my mm-hmm. view. Part of it is the tough stuff that goes on up front, and yes, you know, much more these days than in, in the past in the backs as well, pitting our strongest blokes against another country's strongest blokes. Yeah, it, it's just, it feels it's always sort of felt to me uh, some sort of you know harmless nationalism in a way yeah and, and, and that probably says something about me as a person and it probably doesn't say a lot of good things about me as a person but <laughs> what watching mix watching Mick the Munch Skinner and I, you mentioned Mick in the book don't you mm. watching him go toe to toe with was it Eric Sean I can't remember yeah Eric Sean 1991 semi-final in Paris wasn't it yeah that sort of physicality, what, what, watching our guys go up against their guys, sort of thing, was for me part of the thrill of it. And when you when you package that together with the silky skills of the backs, rugby was just an amazing sport. The problem mm-hmm. for someone like me who has had that passion throughout my life is that I'm now, thanks in part to the work that you've done, acutely aware of the risks, and that mm-hmm. makes life as a fan for me quite an interesting and challenging experience. Yeah, and, and don't forget, Matt, I had that same passion, that same, you know, just sort of fun element where it was inconsequential and you just what and and I agree, you know, there's there are significant elements of this where this, you know, rugby in a way, or sport, you could argue, has kind of slightly replaced going to war in a way, you know, and and rugby, I think people do get very tribal about especially around national international rugby um and it becomes very kind of yeah there is a nationalistic element you can't pretend that standing in a stadium with seventy five thousand people singing god save the queen and or god save the king now obviously um and 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 roaring on a a white shirt with your kind of beloved heroes in you know together representing you you know that is a great thrill for people to have but does it when allow or should it allow from a moral perspective essentially false falsehoods to be told to a pretense to be created a a false narrative to be created around it for let's be honest purely commercial reasons you know and uh, i just come back to the fact that i felt compelled as a journalist first and foremost to report what i was seeing um but yeah you know and i i'm I'm sorry if that's taken some of the thrill away from people like yourself about you know that's that's again talking of unintended consequences that that's that's an unintended consequence but it should be remembered here because there is a lot of scaremongering around anything when it comes to talking about this like there's a lot of nonsense spoken like this is going to kill the game and you know uh it's sort of anti-rugby the nfl has been through this process and the nfl is as commercially vibrant and as watched as it's ever been yes people watch concussions and watch brain injuries and get outraged when players stay on the field but it hasn't materially damaged the nfl okay they have had to pay out a lot of money but a lot of that money's gone into um pots for long-term care for players 
uh, pots for families support uh, in order for them to care for their loved ones who've got early onset dementia caused by their job you know and that's what this is you know this is a duty of care to employees and I don't believe this will kill rugby I passionately hope it won't um, but that also you know when incidents like Farrell happen that won't stop me calling it out. But then what are you calling for what what is your blueprint Sam for the game of rugby to survive? So first and foremost, Matt, a radical reduction in the amount of games that the top guys play. You know, that is, it's ludicrous how much rugby the top England stars are asked to play. There's seemingly no imagination around how the game can be marketed, like the idea that fewer games could be more exciting, they could be better marketed, they could be bigger events. You know, look at again at the NFL model, not that there are all the answers there, because they are different sports, but a lot of the commercial understanding could and should be coming from um, America in this one. Re radically reduce the amount of contact training. We've known for years that players far are getting seriously injured in training. Lots of concussions in training. And I, again, I pull out some of the statistics in the book, like the idea that training was somehow riskier 25 years ago at the when rugby became professional compared to now it just doesn't stand up to scrutiny injuries training in a professional rugby environment right now in the uk is riskier and more dangerous than it's ever been and that is goes against most people's understanding so reduce those contact training reduce the amount of games um, continue to be hyper vigilant around concussion, move the culture away from, you know, get up and carry on to um, let's, let's look after our guys, let's look after our players and give parents confidence that when their kids play, which I do believe this has changed, by the way, I do believe there is a significant cultural shift in club rugby, a much greater understanding of concussion now than there ever has been greater awareness and better treatment. Um, and I think it's a shame when cases like Farrell happen that that change in culture gets forgotten or it sort of um, over takes that dominates everything in fact in so many ways. But yeah, so I think there's some simple things that they can do to, to change the game uh, and also look at this, this reduction in the tackle height. I think that could have a significant impact as well. One of the most powerful things about this whole conversation is that it's happening right now. We're not through this yet. Mm. So rugby is continuing, but it's continuing without some of the action that you would like to see. Mm. And so I'm planning to go and watch a couple of games in the next week or so, South Africa, New Zealand, at Twickenham, England, Fiji. I was at the England-Wales game last weekend, the Owen Farrell tackle game. Mm. And I'm aware that you are saying not enough is being done. And that makes it a very, as I said earlier, that makes it an uncomfortable experience. It takes some of the edge off it inevitably. And it also makes mm. me wonder whether I should even be going. I mean, do, well, what is your message to fans at the moment, given that you quite clearly believe that not enough is still being done? Would you suggest to people such as myself, listen, you've got to turn your back on this game. You've got to stop supporting. You've got to stop giving your money to it until player welfare is taken more seriously. I think that's a fantastic question, Matt. I, I, I mean, essentially, no, I wouldn't say that. But what I would say is 
read up about it. Like obviously I'd say buy the book, but I mean, read where I'm coming at this from. This hasn't just suddenly happened. This is something that's been brewing and bubbling for, well, at least 11 or 12 years, but I would argue much, much longer than that, 30 years since the turn of the professional game, 28 years. And pressure, at, like every commercial body, no matter what, where, you, where it sits, whether it be sport or any food sector, they respond to demand. They respond to what their consumers, and you are as an England supporter, a consumer of England rugby, if you continue to put pressure on the authorities, they will change. They will respond because they want to protect their product and their product's being damaged at the moment. Um, and players are being damaged, obviously. And I think there's a, there, you know, the, the response to the Farrell tackle has been so unified. Like I've hardly, I don't think I've seen anybody saying that was a reasonable tackle and what the heck's the game going on about everyone up in uproar. Okay, his dad has come out and said, you know, he thinks it's all a circus around it and I would expect a father to protect their son. Of course I would. But um, I think I think just on that, I, I hope that Andy Farrell was talking about the abuse yes. that, that, that may have been directed at his son rather than a comment on the, the tackle or the rights or wrongs of that decision. Absolutely, and right to clarify that. But yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, and I would say any of that abuse is absolutely wrong and I and it has no place in the game and but you know social media that's a whole different conversation the the genie um being out of that particular barrel but you know when it comes to rugby I would say and one of the things you asked me when you asked about what could change in the future properly funded players unions give the players an independent voice which separate them from the employers and enable them collectively to make decisions which they know are in their best interest and they might know they might be more diluted on this than i think they should be but at least give them the opportunity and the circumstances and the the landscape upon which they feel they can actually speak openly because that definitely isn't the case in professional rugby it's not the case in many sports by the way and you know we should also say there's a chapter on football in this game which you could argue is even further behind rugby on this, but um, you know there there isn't such an acute risk. But there is absolutely clear evidence that former professional footballers suffer much higher incidence of early onset dementia than the wider population. Um, rugby league hasn't come in under enough scrutiny. I probably you know wish I had put a bit more of scrutiny on rugby league, but rugby union is where I feel there is the most acute problem. But no, I, I would continue supporting, I'd continue going, but I would, you know, vocalise through fans' forums, through social media, that you think it's important to look after the players' brains because if we don't show that that's what the sport's trying to do, then playing numbers will just dry up and that, that will be what kills the sport. You said that there, I think that there was sort of near-anonymity amongst people that the Owen Farrell red card should have stood. I mean... That's not quite true. And I, I noticed that Sean Edwards, who's one of the, the France coaches, said mm. that it was right, or words to the effect, that it was right that Owen Farrell had been cleared to play. Mm. Now, that concerns me, because mm. if people who are as respected in the game as Sean Edwards is, are holding that view, he's entitled to that view. And, but mm -hmm. that worries me. Yeah, worries me as well. And yeah, I mean, it's... 
rugby league's influence on union has been significant in professional game. You know, I remember Sean Edwards, 1994, Great Britain against Australia, um, responsible for one of the worst tackles I've ever witnessed on a rugby field. Um, you know, there is an old school culture, which again, I talk about quite a lot in the book, which essentially will never accept that any sort of um, uh, punitive action against players for acts of extreme recklessness um, are okay. And, you know, I don't think players should be carrying the can for this. I don't think um, it's fair for all the um, disciplinary process to be brought to bear against players. There are lots of people within rugby who've been very much responsible for creating a culture since the game went professionalism where basically tackling people or hitting people in the head was okay and became normalized and it you know that the players just sort of respond to the culture in a way and i think sean edwards is completely wrong on this and i think anybody who can't look at that and say that is a blatant red card is just out of step now um, and, and behind the curve uh, it, it cannot be okay for you to do that on a field and I will say with absolute confidence that if that is okay, then the game is, as Nigel Owens has said today, you know, great Welsh referee has said, if that is okay, rugby's in serious trouble. I'm not a doctor, you're not a doctor, but I have a loose understanding that there's a possibility that concussion isn't just about being hit in the head, mm. contact with the head, but that there's a sort of repetitive, I don't even know how to describe this properly. Sub concussive blows, I call Subconcussive blows, so you you might have repeated contact elsewhere in the body that can have an impact on the brain, and mm-hmm. that is very worrying because I don't see how the, how you eliminate that from the sport. No, no, I mean, and, and that's something that's been found in the research. Lots of it's come out of Boston, but there's lots of other research um, that's been done now to show that yeah, the repetitive reverberations essentially your brain is this sort of gelatinous mass within held within a uh, a hard skull um and that reverberating around whether or not it then shows demonstrable symptoms which we associate with a kind of a, a, a diagnosable concussion but there's also lots of other evidence to show that those subconcussive blows the multiple hits that don't lead to you being ataxic or dizzy or slurring your speech or you know or losing consciousness in fact losing consciousness is uh only happens in a small percentage of concussions but yeah that and that you know again this is that is a much bigger issue than just rugby union there are lots and lots of sports i've mentioned football rugby league afl you know there are loads of sports where that is very relevant and again it then comes back to informed choice you know, there's lots of other clear health benefits to playing sport, obesity, diabetes, you know, all sorts of things which I would strongly encourage people to play sport. Mental health. Mental health, absolutely. But, you know, that doesn't mean that this issue shouldn't be addressed. Do you feel more supported than you did by your peers, by, mm. by fellow sports journalists now? Yeah, unquestionably. I mean, I think that's why this... One of the reasons the Farrell case has got such attention is because the pennies dropped with the media. And yeah, it was it was really difficult for a period of time when I was reporting this on my own, not like on my own consistently. Lots of other writers who I hopefully give credit to in the book um, had reported this. Peter Jackson from the Daily Mail 
was a kind of hero of mine in the world of journalism. And he wrote a very, very powerful piece around this in 2009, talking about Ben Herring and Michael Lippmann. Michael Lippmann, one of the players who's subsequently gone on to develop um, early onset dementia. But no, I mean, lots of my fellow reporters, colleagues thought I was completely bonkers doing what I was doing. They thought I was, as I talked about at the start, you know, um, attacking the sport, which was making us a living as well. Um, But I think over time, as the evidence sadly has presented itself, specifically with the group of cohort of players now who have developed early onset dementia, which was what I was talking about 10 years ago, saying that this was the risk. Um, now that they are actually out there, this is tangible reality rather than possibility. Um, and that has really changed, I think, a lot of people's view. Obviously, I can't prove a link between rugby and what Steve Thompson has been going through. But this is a man who has got, I believe, a form of dementia. Mm -hmm. And he was a hero of mine, along with those other players who helped us win the World Cup in 2003. For someone like that, you know, know, we follow each other on on social media to, to witness the struggles that Steve has experienced is very, very tough, obviously, Mm. because if it is linked to rugby, he gave us so much pleasure. Mm. And now he's experiencing these difficulties. But it also forces us, doesn't it, to realise that this is a, you know, again, if it is linked to rugby, this is is a, a, a clear and present danger to players. Yeah. Yes. And I mean, we only have to look at the data again um, to show that there are clear links to repetitive head injuries and long term um, negative outcomes when it comes. And, and some of, a lot of that research, in fact, quite a lot of that research has been conducted by World Rugby, by some of it by the RFU, although not enough. Um, again it, it's a lot of the that information is hidden away in some of those research documents because they have not been presented i would say with the really interesting information at the top of the the, the reports essentially and you know the media being what it is like we do unfortunately for all manner of reasons we swallow the top line as it's called and that's what most people run with but you know there's clear evidence um you know and over time that's just playing out more and more um and uh, you know yeah it's 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 something that is very hard to hear it's very hard for us as fans to to accept but it's reality and that's why the book's called uncomfortable truth sports uncomfortable truth is because it's difficult um i've never pretended it's anything but difficult i've never pretended it's an easy thing to solve especially when you're involved in a sport like rugby where concussion has historically always been there um but my case my argument has has been that the concussion risk has got astronomically high and the evidence was there to see that that curve was going in a certain direction and that was only going to come with consequences and so that that's really what the book is about will you be watching the rugby world cup definitely yeah without a doubt i mean i still love watching rugby i watch it differently there's no question like you know probably 25 years ago i watched it in the way perhaps um you know just a fa- i was just a fan um and i was able to sort of disassociate the injuries that were seen on the pitch from the like 
once the player the, to turn the TV off, back to the beers, talking about other stuff, and forget about what was happening in the medical rooms and the you know and or even the hospitals where the players were going. But I guess over time, as I started to say, marry up that data that I was seeing and reading um, and other research which I was looking into, which perhaps wasn't being as presented uh, clearly either. Um, and just witnessing it on a day-to-day level, I just took the position and belief that it was intolerable. Has what you've gone through, has this journey that you've gone through on concussion, tempted you towards other sports a bit? So I'm just thinking of myself, I have... I've, I've edged away and I've sort of edged back again, but I've edged away a little bit from rugby because of the concussion issue. Mm. And I've, you know, I've always been a massively passionate cricket fan and love, love mm. playing the game as well. But cricket is, of course, there's risk attached. We know, tragically, an Australian player, Philip yeah. Hughes, lost his life mm. hit on the head by a bouncer. Mm-hmm. We know there are risks attached to cricket. We know that attitudes to concussion have changed within cricket because you now have concussion substitutes. Yep. It, it feels to me, and I'm just a punter, but it feels to me that cricket isn't experiencing the same sort of crisis here. And perhaps, and also football isn't. It doesn't mean that we, that doesn't mean that, that football doesn't have to look hard at itself. Mm. But I've edged a bit more back towards football because of what's going on in, in rugby. I know that your father's second cousin <laughs> was Martin Peters, who scored 60 or well, played 60-odd times for England, scored 20 goals, scored, as you describe in the book, the other goal in the <laughs> 1966 World Cup yeah. final. And he had dementia, didn't he, when he died? Yes. So yeah. This is not just a rugby issue. And I, I wonder, as I say, first of all, have you edged towards other sports and a, and a bit away from rugby? And also, is what we're experiencing in rugby, is football going to experience similar things or not, do you think? Well, I mean... I, the book is called Sports Uncomfortable Truth. It's not called Rugby's Uncomfortable Truth. And I focused on rugby because I was the rugby correspondent in the Mail on Sunday. That was where I did the, the majority of my work and where I saw the most acute problem. But that does not mean it's the only sport with a concussion problem. You know, you look over in Australia with what's happening in AFL. You know, rugby league to me is massively under scrutinised. The, there is not so much public media attention on that sport they are not managing that issue well at all. Um, and I think, you know, in some ways I do have some sympathy for rugby union because it's it's attempted to understand the issue. At least it's tracked the data, um, it's tracked the injury numbers, and it's tried to implement some um, changes. But again, I'd say not enough. The thing that I fell out of love with, with rugby, was this disconnect in the narrative, this promotion of the sport as you know, somehow morally more virtuous than other games and somehow, you know, the fact that it was building character. But to me, honesty is the most important characteristic um, and the thing that we should be promoting above all things. And I felt there was a real dishonesty in the way that the injury narrative was being presented. And that's what I fell out of love with. Um, I also think there's a really strong case to argue that if you reduce the power on the pitch, you reduce the size of the collisions, you would actually go back to a less suffocating game. I mean, I think back to, you know, let's even think about the Wales-South Africa semi-final of the World Cup. It was literally one of the worst games of rugby I've ever watched in my life. It was just an exercise in risk avoidance in terms of 
not taking chances. There was no space on the field. The defences were so well organised and it just became a kickathon and it was just awful. Um, and I don't think people want that. I think people actually want that element of lack of organisation. They want the space on the field. And I think, you know, there's every case to argue. So the All Blacks, OK, they're not a great All Black side at the moment. They're still a pretty good team. But New Zealand has consistently played better rugby over the last, well, 100 years. And that's because there's such a focus on schools and growing up on skills and handling the ball, spatial awareness, moving players around the field, pace, fitness, not just brute force. And I think England and probably South Africa are the two countries that base their game most around power. And, you know, there's a, there's, there, are, there is a better option. There's something that we can do differently to make it more appealing. But does that mean artificially preventing players from lifting a certain amount of weights? Or does that mean changing the rules within the game to emphasise creativity and pace over bulk and power? Yeah, potentially. I mean, again, that's probably a question for someone else, but um, in terms of, you know, exactly where you can change the game. And I do think, I've, as I say, I've got some sympathy for the administrators in terms of this, because the game has changed so radically that you really are needing to look at some pretty radical counterbalances to that change. So whatever, if they're really serious about reducing the injury risk, and if player welfare really is the number one priority, which is what we're told all the time, like there's, there are still significant changes to be made. And whether that's imposing a weight limit, perhaps, I don't know, that's a possibility, but you certainly never used to get 23 stone tight head props who could run the 100 in 12 seconds, throw a miss pass off their wrong hand, scrummage well, lift in the line out and clear out rucks. That, that, that is a new phenomena. And, you know, personally, I think back with some fondness on the 17 stone tight head prop who didn't do all those things. But, you know, again, we also have to be careful about romanticising the past. I accept that point as well. You didn't tell me whether, you, whether football is facing a similar sort of crisis. Yeah, sorry, that wasn't intentional. That was just me talking uh, too much. But yeah, I mean, again, a chapter on the book is about the Jeff Astle story. Um, that was a story, I didn't uncover the story, but what I did uncover was the fact that the research that had been promised by the FA and the PFA hadn't been carried out. And I went to the Astle family and told them, so Jeff Astle, footballer died age 59, one of the great English centre-forwards of the professional period, famous for heading his ability to head the ball was found to have died with early onset dementia, neurodegenerative problems, which the, when his brain was examined in 2001, the coroner found that they were directly associated to his, his job as a footballer. The research which the FA and PFA promised after that did not get carried out. There is absolutely clear evidence now on multiple studies that former professional footballers get dementia earlier. You mentioned my father's cousin, Martin Peters, you know, that 19... 66 team is riddled with dementia guys in their 70s who've either died or are living with it right now and getting dementia in your early 70s is, or late 60s is unusual that isn't typical for most human beings football has a problem with dementia there's no question about that i mean there's been some really good work done on that the telegraph jeremy wilson's done some excellent work on that the mail after i left the paper ran a really good concussion in sport, um, football, uh, dementia and football campaign. 
and and Dawn Astle, Jeff's daughter, has been an absolute Trojan on that front. And the Jeff Astle Foundation, of which I'm a patron, has done some phenomenal work and continues to do some phenomenal work. I mean, I guess the hope is that the balls are lighter than they once were. That's the hope, but they travel faster. You know, I think heading is not good for you. I think that's fair to say. Uh, when I was at school, Matt, I would I would avoid heading the ball. Um, I didn't fancy it, as they say. Um, that was just, I didn't really know why. I certainly wasn't thinking I could get dementia when I'm 70, but it just instinctively didn't feel right to put my head, and they were quite heavy lever balls in those days. And I remember goalkeepers kicking it, punting it up in the air, and you know you just have to pop your head up and try and head it back, and it damn well hurt. And I didn't particularly like it. I'm not embarrassed to say that. I don't think I'm alone. I'll say as well, I'm a centre-half where heading is quite an important part, as you know, yeah. of, of the remit. And I have had exactly the same instinctive reaction to heading the ball. Mm. I'm a very physical player and I sort of pride myself, rightly or wrongly, on being a physical player, not a dirty player. Mm. But heading is not something I... Uh, it's not something <laughs> I've, I've ever fancied. Because, again, it's, it's instinctively, it just think, well, first of all, it can hurt a bit. Yeah, especially if you don't know how to do it, and secondly, mm. secondly, it just it doesn't quite make sense. It doesn't feel like that's what our head our head was is is there for, and therefore I wonder um, whether football at some point will. You know, there has even been talk of the idea of football, you know, maybe reducing heading so that you don't head mm. in practice, for example. Perhaps. Well, that's definitely <laughs> coming lower down in schools, and again, you know, you talk about protecting brains, or we t- I've been talking about it, but certainly there's clear evidence again um, that juvenile brains are growing they're in the development stages they're more vulnerable they need to be looked after more and i would absolutely support a, a, a ban on heading footballs under 12 possibly even older than that and again i think you know what that it, it may improve the sport and some of the best football teams i've watched aren't the ones that lump it up in the air and then have a big center half or a central defender um getting under the ball they've got the best football teams play the play the ball on the ground. Um, that's the most entertaining. Uh, and just quickly, where are you on tackling? I say quickly, is important. Where are you on tackling in schools? What, what do you think should be, I mean, you're not a doctor, I re-emphasise yeah. that, but what, what, yeah. what, what's your view of tackling in rugby in schools? I, I mean, I, well, I don't think anybody, first and foremost, should ever be made to play rugby. I don't, I don't think that's helpful for anybody. I don't think it's helpful for the guys like myself and yourself who used to love it. Um, but whenever you get somebody on the pitch, I always remember it, who, who didn't want to be there. That was no good for anybody. So I would not force anybody to play rugby. That goes without saying. Um, and I would be clear about the risks of tackling You know, there is a case to say that you need to learn the technique at a young age in order to be proficient when you get older. I would question whether that's true. Uh, I think the physical side of rugby can come later. I would have resisted that massively at age 9, 10, 11. If you'd have told me you're not going to take contact for another three or four years, I'd have hugely resisted that. But with time comes perspective and knowledge um, and all those things, but I would, I would certainly look at reducing the amount of contact that kids take. And I really believe that would be for the betterment of the sport because I go back to the New Zealand model, you improve your, football, you improve your footballing skills, your ability to pass the ball, spatial awareness, you create better, better rugby players. So I don't think it would be disastrous to radically reduce the amount of contact that, that 
school kids take. I mean, it's actually pretty obvious that's what you should do, I'd have thought. I don't know whether I'm right or wrong in, in this, but I seem to remember that in New Zealand, the way they play rugby at schools is to match up people according to size more than yeah. according to age. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, we, you know, we all have had experience of this at school as I did. You'd have, you know, one boy who was much, much bigger than the others because he was yeah. developing at a different rate and at a different age. Mm-hmm. And having a massive guy sort of twice the size thudding into the smaller guys might not be mm. something that I do. So that's, uh, there are all sorts of ways in which perhaps people can, we can sort mm. of do things. I don't know. Definitely. And, uh, you know, that's something that's been talked about over here for many years and the RFU's always resisted it. I don't really know why. It's common sense to me. I completely agree. You know, I was never that guy, as in really massive, but I was always pretty big for my age. But I definitely remember um, aged about 11 or 12 playing against guys who'd hit puberty early. And it was just ridiculous, you know, running in four or five tries and what was often the case, or, you know, it certainly happened a lot, was that those guys who developed much more quickly physically at a young age, they didn't develop the skills and all the other good things that I've talked about because they didn't need to because they thought they'd always be able to run over people. And then come the age 15, 16, when everyone had caught up physically, they weren't actually as good and it actually caused them problems. Final question, why did you stop being a sports reporter? And what, what, are, you, what are you doing now apart from this book? <laughs> Uh, well, I mean, the number one reason was the best reason that's ever happened in my life, which was my daughter was born. And I just didn't want to travel. Um, I didn't want to be away every single weekend. I didn't want to miss all the big moments in her life. And I was due to go to New Zealand in 2017 to cover the Lions tour. My wife didn't want me to go. I didn't want to go. So there was no decision to be made. And, and, and it was the easiest decision, actually, at that point to to stand down I did come back into the game a little bit as in the game being journalism sports journalism but you know it's really that amount of traveling and time away from family which I just stopped wanting to do coupled with the fact that I felt that I couldn't really do any more in that arena in order to continually keep calling this out Um, and actually it's given me the time and the opportunity to set up another business I run a business called Planted which is an events and media company focused on nature-based, environmentally focused businesses, um, and also time to write this book, which I think is, for me, um, it's by no means the absolute sort of reflection of what I experienced, but I'm I'm pretty proud of this book. Um, I know the sacrifices I've had to sort of make to, to get to this point. Um, people who know me well know that I did take quite a lot of um, make quite a lot of sacrifices. Um, I gave up a lot to do this. Um, I don't regret it for a second and um, I'd do it all again. And I really hope if it achieves anything, it's to give people some perspective on why this conversation is where it is right now and some context. And the book is out now? Well, it's uh, it's, pub- it's available to purchase um, for pre-order on the usual uh, platforms, uh, Amazon being one, but bookshop.com being another, which is a great platform to buy books um and then uh it's available in uh all bookshops or good bookshops um from august the 31st sam peters thank you very much for answering my 20 questions my pleasure matt thanks so much for having me on it's been a pleasure